Welcome to another episode of the WBT. Uh, this particular episode will consist of myself, Adrian Bonnenberger, co-editor Michael Carson, and co-editor David James discussing Isaac Babel and Red Cavalry, which is a collection of stories he wrote um, allegedly uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. We'll also be discussing some details of his life. And to bring us in, David James is going to read uh, Borhe or excerpts of Borges's biography of Isaac Babel, which is a very typical biography, um, sort of plain and uh, unremarkable in all um, in all aspects of the type of biography one will encounter when reading about Isaac Babel, including his own autobiography. David. Hey guys, yeah. Um, so I, just by chance, I was um, flipping through Borges' selected nonfictions uh, before this podcast, and I came across by chance a one-page biography of Isaac Babel um, by Borges, written in 1938, which was actually the year before Babel's ex death by execution. And yeah, it kind of jumps out at you a bit because this is written in the present tense as uh, Babel was a living writer. And it's, uh, it's very interesting though. I'm just gonna read a couple excerpts that kind of give a flavor for who Babel was and with a Borgesian, I think, uh, twist in a way. So Isaac Babel, he was born in the jumbled catacombs of the stair-stepped port of Odessa late in 1894. Irreparably Semitic, Isaac was the son of a rag merchant from Kiev and a Moldavian Jewess. Catastrophe, catastrophe has been the normal climate of his life. In early 1921, Babel joined a Cossack reg regiment. Those blustering and useless warriors, no one in the history of the universe has been defeated more often than the Cossacks, were, of course, anti-Semitic. The mere idea of a Jew on horseback struck them as laughable, and the fact that Babel was a good horseman only added to their disdain and spite. A couple of well-timed and flashy exploits enabled Babel to make them leave him in peace. His unmatched book is titled Red Cavalry. The music of its style contrasts with the almost ineffable brutality of certain scenes. One of the stories, Salt, enjoys a glory seemingly reserved for poems and rarely attained by prose. Many people know it by heart. So that is uh, Borges's brief uh, biography of Babel in 1938. Uh, Babel was executed by Stalin uh, the next year, 1939, and Red Cavalry is, his, I think, his most famous, most um, probably well-regarded work. Maybe it's Odessa Tales. I don't know. What, what do you think? I would agree. Red Cavalry is the one uh, people uh, tend to know him for. And um, I think you're right with that Borgesian twist. Uh, I really love that opening and Borges's choices there. Uh, did you all, do you all remember reading Salt, uh, the, the Salt story about essentially a, a train of Cossacks, right? And they're, they're stopped at a train station and you have a group of um, women that are trying to get on uh, and the Cossacks are taking advantage of the women essentially. Uh, and one woman, they, uh, has a baby, looks like a, she has a baby, uh, and she's worried that they might take advantage of her situation if she comes on the train. 
um, but she really needs to move to the next stop. Uh, and all of a sudden the Cossacks start acting like gentlemen, all right? These like, uh, these warriors that you see throughout Red Calvary in this most extreme violent ways, but they're gentlemen suddenly because of this baby. It turns out it's not a baby, it's actually a bag of salt. Uh, but we could talk maybe more about what happens to her and it's, it's violent, like everything in Red Calvary, it, it kind of goes there eventually. Uh, there's a certain brutality. But I wrote this quote down about that story right before this uh, conversation uh, from the beginning. It's told through the perspective of one of the, the Calvary members, not Babel himself. It's like a voice, a recording through a voice. Uh, and he says, uh, so I shall write to you only about what my eyes have seen with their own hands. Uh, and this is the soldier talking, not Babel. Babel's writing the soldier. And I really find that fascinating, this idea that I write to you only about what my eyes have seen with their own hands. This joining of what I see with my actions in my hands. And then the end assault um, ends badly for that woman who, who gets on the train. Uh, she's shot at the end. Uh, and I think, I guess my wheels are spinning my head about Borges' choice there, because there, why, why that story? Why, why salt? Why is everyone grown up reading salt and understanding it when, when in fact, not many people have? Um, so, I don't know, interesting quote, but. Yeah, yeah. I have, I'm gonna have to think about that a little bit more too, um, because I just came across this quote basically right before we're recording and I haven't thought about it and salt as the story in the collection didn't jump out to me as, uh, especially one of the best ones, you know, that would be, um, you know, the classic, you know, anthologized story that it definitely doesn't seem like anything someone would know by heart. Uh, but yeah, it does fit in with, I think, the theme of everything in the book, which is what was mentioned there, which is brutality of uh, just general human brutality. So I think, I don't know if we gave the context of the whole situation. So Bobble was a writer and an educated person, I think trained as a lawyer, and he was writing from an early age. Uh, after the Russian Revolution, there was uh, the Russian Civil War, and there was a continuation of war on all sides in the Soviet Union with uh, the whites, with Americans, British, and Polish, and um, Bobble himself was dispatched with a, a Cossack in, uh, cavalry unit in the Polish War. So in, around 1920 and 1921, this was still going on. And um, it was an especially brutal war. I mean, I guess every war is in its way at that time. World War I was, I don't know if it was more brutal than the general Eastern or Western front of World War I. But it's just the, the amount of human cruelty on both sides, you know, the execution of civilians, um, the disdain for human life. I mean, all of that is captured in Bobble's work, Red Cavalry here. And you get it almost in every single story. It's kind of like, you know, the, the twist ending or whatever it is, you always have some innocent civilian who's executed. Or, you know, just it's one thing after the other. And, What's striking about it to me is that, um, you know, you juxtapose this uh, inconceivable brutality with just magnificent written language. 
And uh, it's what a lot of other authors have commented on. It's a very influential collection that's just beautifully written with great turns of phrase. And so. Yeah, you know, something I wanted to pick up on there is in addition to the, the beautiful writing, it's also beautifully constructed. And I, like yourself, David, uh, Salt did not jump out to me as one of the, uh, one of the best stories from the collection. Uh, but it certainly, it, 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 it was astonishing. Um, and I think, I think maybe if, if Borges is, is picking this story out among others, um, not necessarily for poetry, it, it could be that the, um, you know, the construction of it is, you have the woman, the, the, I mean, the construction of it or the construction of any good story tends to be, you have something set up, there's some type of obstacle, the obstacle is overcome and the catharsis that one experiences as a reader derives from the overcoming of the obstacle. And it seems when you're reading Salt for the first time that the obstacle is going to be the Cossacks um, lustful and violent nature. And, but she's able to, the woman is able to plead her case and she has the baby and suddenly the, you know, they are transformed and they begin treating her like a gentleman. And that seems like the type of story that where, where that's the end of the story now. And then she gets off of the train, she gets to the next stop and you feel, you know, more confident about humanity and humanity has been redeemed. But there's another twist in the story, which is that actually she has no baby. It's this a pood of salt or something, some weird measurement of salt. Uh, and she gets sniffed out because the, 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 the writer, which is not Babel, as Mike pointed out, uh, says that she hasn't been feeding her baby. She hasn't fed her baby once in the whole two hours that they've been on the train or something, something to this effect. So there's another turn in the story. And that turn takes the positive energy of the original challenge or turn and, and makes it permissible for the awful thing that happens to her. Because you know, once that has happened, once she sort of admits her lie, you, you, I, I did anyway as a reader. I felt you know, like that I, I too had been cheated because I was thinking to myself, well, this is great. The Cossacks, you know, have, have had an opportunity to show their, their better nature. And, and truly, all people are like this. All people want to protect the weak and even in a time of war. And when that's, when that's taken from you, you then experience a sort of anger and betrayal and all things become permissible. So one on the train experiences the same thing that the other Russians did. And I want to say that one of the, uh, or one of the, you know, the red cavalry men, like at first they, the, the, the argument is between letting her off. I mean, like they're good. They're going to kick her off of the train or throw her off of the train. And that might be it. But then the officer who's been, who's been tricked uh, gets a rifle out. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that, that construction, that, that, that double turn is one of the things that makes Salt a, 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 an unusually good story and it's and very subversive, um, especially as a war story. It's, uh, it's really delightful, but also horrifying. Yeah, that's well said, Adrian. I like this idea of the double turn. And I like how both of you pointed out that Salt isn't a story that it sticks out, but it's not one you'd be like, wow, that was my favorite story in there. Uh, and I, I find it fascinating that Borges chose that story. And it's, it's making me think like, it's a story that we don't want to remember. We don't want to have stick out. And even if we were like, well, that's well crafted, we're like, I want to forget that immediately. Uh, and I think that is interesting, but also like you're saying, the construction of the story in terms of, and a lot of these stories I feel not 
only a conversation about the war and the violence, but about art and the role of art generally. And Salt could easily be turned into this conversation about art and artifice and how the soldiers are reacting to this women's trick, right, to get on the train. And one line from the opening here, it opens up a dear comrade editor. And so it's, <laughs> he's writing, it's this soldier who's like an earnest soldier of the revolution is writing about this, this trick. Uh, and I want to write to you about unconscious women who are harmful to us. And this, now it's really getting to me, like this unconsciousness and this throughout the Red Calvary, Babel is associated at times with the soldiers, but at the time with women as well. Uh, and I think that's kind of fascinating. And then you have towards the end, like Adrian was saying, that moment when they throw her off the train uh, after the discovery of the deceit. And that the Cossack who's writing this says, I wanted to jump down from the wagon and kill myself or kill her. But the Cossacks had pity on me and said, give her one from your rifle. What is going on? I wanted to kill myself or I wanted to kill her. And then he uses the rifle and that's not doing killing himself or her. Like the rifle to them, that's what's another strain that's in this story. The idea of violence from far away is a different kind of violence than violence from up close. Uh, and then, uh, of course, he, he ends uh, at the end here, uh, taking my trusty rifle from the wall. Uh, and uh, for all the fighting men in the second platoon, Nikita uh, Bamalshov, soldier of the revolution. Uh, and yeah, it's stuck right in the middle. Uh, it's such a horrifying story. And I think we want to immediately forget it. Uh, and, but it's central to what Babel's doing throughout all of this. And I think back to your point, Adrian, this idea of uh, we want to look for that redemptive, redemptive element, that usual moment where we're like, well, these guys are still not that bad, right? They're, there's something human in them in the traditional sense of humanism. Uh, and he doesn't let us have that. But there's still a certain honor that they have that they insist upon, right? It's, the, it's her fault. Uh, and anyways, I, I want to figure out what Borges was thinking. And really quickly on that, if, if the thing that we're looking for is some type of commonality and we experience a kind of um, empathy or sympathy in reading the story and what we're left with is horror that also says something about ourself, uh, ourselves. So the project of, of Babel is, is um, and probably Borges as well, um, as authors is, yeah. Go ahead. It's, and it does say something about ourselves. And I, I really feel that quote I started out with this, so I shall write to you only about my eyes have seen with their own hands. I really feel that Babel is pushing us like towards a, a new kind of person that is something that we don't understand fundamentally as literary minded people. Uh, and this distance between seeing and hands and, and this soldier mind where it's joined together. Uh, and we don't want to understand that world for good reason at times, but we're also fascinated by it, which is part of the appeal of this. I mean, there's, like David was getting at, there's, there's certain beauty, moments of beauty in this horror uh, that are undeniably appealing, um, and but also kind of horrifically appealing if we think about why. Uh, but interesting story. Yeah, and it, it reminds me of what we were talking about recently, Mike, with um, our podcast on J.M. Cutsey. And you know how to be, how to render 
um, violence and torture, these horrific human acts in art. So whether that's the written word or actually works of works of art, you know, how do you do it without becoming complicit? And you know, it it seems like it's one of those things that you just have to thread the needle. Here with uh, with Bobble, um, I don't know. It, it seems to me like it's one of the first real examples of war literature. It's like really showing the horrific side of war. I mean, you know, there's a long tradition where fiction and art has represented war, but as far as the modern age, I mean, for me, this seems like one of the first examples. You know, World War One. now, it's, um, you know, it's well known. We know everything that happened and it's, it's almost a cliche, but at the time, you know, the readers and even uh, literary people, they didn't, they didn't write about war like this, you know, at this level, with this level of hopelessness and, and brutality um, actually, uh, you know, shown on the page and just example after example in every single story, there's, you know, someone gets shot or uh, murdered and innocent people and just the total cynicism, that side of it, it's, it's something that just like hits you over the head as you read and you really don't want to remember. I mean, actually, when I first read it, I didn't remember a lot of it. I kind of, I think I wasn't in the right place. I just, um, I appreciated some of the writing, but I just, I, I couldn't get into it. It was, it was too much for me, I think. It was over the top. I've been rereading some of it from a more distant perspective and, you know, taking more out of it, looking at the writing and comparing it to some other things I've read at this point. But, um, you know, it's, it's not for uh, novice readers, I think, or, you know, it, it's a high level real world experience of this is war. You know, there's uh, nothing glory about it, glorious, you know, and uh, this is what it is. I feel, I don't know if you could think of other examples like this where, you know. Before, before you do that, I just wanted to real quickly, before we go to other examples and things, I just wanted to, that moment in the beginning there, David, you're saying like the cutscene conversation about representing violence and trying to get at something that is dramatic in this way. What I really think is interesting to me, what is unique about Red Calvary, and is that he's, he's trying to get soldiers, these Cossacks, these people, to illustrate their emotions in an honest way that somehow authentically gets them. And it, I think there's been a lot of war stories. There's zillions out there, right? There's always something false about them because it's usually an intellectual trying to like understand what this violence is about in some ways. Babel sees that and he's, he's trying to, to get in these, these, like that soldier in salt, like get in his head uh, and not diminish or somehow, um, what is it? The, uh, be condescending towards how he's thinking and who these people are. It's almost just like revolutionary. I mean, it makes sense, the revolution, revolutionary form of writing where it's trying and realizing it's, it's almost impossible. Like you're saying, David, like our cutsy conversation, like how do you do that? Uh, but he's, he's trying to get to, to give voice to people who don't have any kind of literary voice at all or any kind of um, traditional poetic imagination. Uh, and he's running up into walls, but it, it's very uncomfortable, I think for us. And to get at people who don't think these Cossacks, these people who live 
in the land of the land, right? They never had any kind of, um, I mean, at one point there's a character in there says, yeah, I, I, I'm illiterate down to the bottom of my soul. Uh, and he's trying to tell the story of people who are illiterate, illiterate to the bottoms of their souls, uh, which is terrifying. Um, but also is somehow, I mean, it could be inspiring like the attempt if you really want to go there. I don't know. But I think one, so one story uh, that is very commonly read, I think, in MFA programs and ought to be read uh, widely in veteran writing workshops is uh, Ambrose Bierce's uh, An Incident at Owl Creek. Um, and, and that reminds me somewhat in terms of tenor, um, but also subject matter. And of course, this is an, uh, a story about uh, a, a, a Confederate spy who's caught by the Union and he uh, um, imagines that he is escaping um, from his sentence of death by hanging. And I think maybe one of the things that is extraordinary about Red Cavalry and gets at, this is also, you know, concerns the violence that we read in many of the stories, is that, um, you know, the, 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 firstly, the Civil War, which is barely discussed in, in, in the collection at all, um, save as parts of stories, um, you know, I was here, you know, in 1918, or I was there as part of this other unit. Just a total aside, um, given as context for, for why a, a character had a certain motivation to do something, but unimportant and unexceptional in and of itself, is that this is, you know, ideologically driven. And so everybody ends up being potentially an enemy or a friend. Um, you go, when they're, when they're attacking various Polish villagers, uh, villages, uh, you know, the Cossacks will be, you know, executing Jewish POWs or Poles, or Poles will be executing Jewish POWs, uh, or the Cossacks will be looting uh, Roman Catholic churches or, um, you know, or, or seizing landowners. And it's very difficult to tell, even in the case of SALT, um, you know, who, who is kind of participating in the project of the war correctly and who isn't. Um, so in the case of this woman, she ends up being essentially seen as a freeloader and, uh, you know, not, not, not having given what she ought to, to the cause. And the, from the perspective of this Cossack, um, that would have been, you know, some type of trade on her part for her seat on the train, um, something that she didn't want to give up, which justified to her, her masquerade. And, uh, and so I think that's one of the, one of the problems of war literature one of the easy traps that that can fall into is, um, is dishonestly portraying an us versus them. And I say dishonestly because I mean, on a human level, that's extremely dishonest. You know, you'll, you'll, you hear the account of an Ernst Junger, for example, who's going into the battle, going into battle with the Germans. And, and he said, you know, he'll, he'll express a kind of admiration for the British soldiers or the French soldiers when they fight hard. Um, and admiration for his German comrades who are fighting hard, um, or disdain for the Germans uh, or the British or the French who aren't fighting hard. And if he thinks about it, and I don't, it's been a long time since I read Storm of Steel or anything else by him, uh, or any other war writer for that matter, uh, they'll talk, you know, praisingly or admonishingly about their fellow citizens um, and about the citizens of the other country. 
but it's very much an abstraction. Um, and, and you get to put those people into whatever bucket you want. You can put them into the, their bad bucket, or you can put them into the, their good bucket, or you can put them into its, it's a kind of, it's, it's complex bucket. Um, and all you really have to do is kind of express empathy or sympathy toward them. You can say like, well, you know, but I'm not in that position, I'm in this other position. And these stories don't let you do that. And these stories, everybody is potentially, and in many cases, actually bad and good at the same time. And that's the situation that a war, probably like the Civil War, like any Civil War, and maybe like uh, the Russo or the Soviet-Polish uh, War as well, a, a war where the, the, the boundaries are very fluid, things are moving, you're galloping very quickly in one direction and then another direction. Nobody knows who's a friend, who's an ally. It's, it's just sort of everything is an expression of where you are at that ex exact moment. Um, that's really, that's a very painful truth um, and, and horrifying to any civilian, uh, to any veteran, to any human. Any human should find that truth about war appalling. And, um, and that makes this uh, collection, um, to the extent that it is a, 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 a collection about war or violence, I think, uh, you know, a, a great collection, an anti-war collection, you could call it, um, because it, it, it shows you precisely where you stand when the bullets are firing, which is, you know, lucky to be alive or unlucky to be shot. And that, yeah, someone's always getting shot. <laughs> yeah, Adrian, that was very well said. And you helped me sort of put my finger a little bit better on what I was trying to, to express about this work, I think. You know, it's, it's clearly a great work of fiction and it's beautifully written insofar as beautiful prose can represent grotesque um, examples of human uh, brutality. But what, it, what it's not is a, an example of, you know, this universal human empathy or, um, you know, this thing we, we kind of want to get from great works of art in some way. It's a negative example of that. It's very bleak. It, it's not political either, except as a historical document, because yes, this was written in this particular war in 1920, and you could see those two sides fighting each other. It, it's almost incidental, the details of who is on what side, what the nationalities are, what the time is. For me, it, it could be universal. It's a human book showing the worst thing that humans can do to each other. I mean, this could have been the Mongol armies, you know, burning down uh, cities across Central Asia. It could be the Germans. It could be, you know, any side in any war, but showing individual human interactions. It's not necessarily based on any ide ideology. You know, it's, it's even before the Soviet program and propaganda took hold and, um, you know, got its roots into every part of the state. This was just Bobble himself writing what he saw, and he wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, into the Soviets. It's just, um, this is what individual people, some of whom he's with, happen to be Cossack cavalrymen, are doing to other Russians, or to the Jews there, or to Polish people, or civilians, and whoever they find, you know, who they're humiliating, 
uh, executing, and it's just showing example after example of, I think, the worst of human behavior, almost without a reason. It's like, this is what happens when there's no rules anymore. It's kind of like, you know, chaos or, uh, you know, nihilism, whatever we get from Dostoevsky's, uh, you know, Brothers Karamazov, you know, what happens if there's no God, you know, this is what happens. Maybe not really, but, you know, we're seeing the worst that humans could do here at any time period. I really want to jump in really quickly um, because my favorite uh, story from the collection and the story that reading it, I thought, and I, I might be wrong about this, but I felt sure that it would be Mike's favorite and it could be your favorite, David, was uh, Pan Apolek, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and that's the story about, um, it's about a sort of seditious and humanistic priest who goes about like painting these murals. And, uh, and then later on in the story, he's sort of, he's painting these murals of, uh, of townsmen uh, and the church gets really angry at him because everybody's, you know, the, the church wants like important people to be painted as Jesus and, um, and the various, uh, uh, you know, uh, apostles, like these shouldn't be farmers, these should be like glorious, glorious men and women. And then Pan Apolek, if, if I've remembered the story correctly, uh, he tells a story of his own. So there's like this a story within a story and he tells a story about Jesus's blasphemous uh, marriage to Deborah, a maiden of Jerusalem and of common birth. And it's, it's, it, it just, it, it's another great example of, um, I think what you were just talking about. Uh, firstly, the refusal to give any type of um, uh, positive weight um, or negative weight necessarily to people, to still letting their actions speak for it. And so there are no real villains in the story. And it's really funny too. But it's also, it reminded me actually of you know, Brothers K, of course, Satan's, you know, appearance um, and his, his uh, or the Grand Inquisitor, I'm sorry, the Grand Inquisitor's scene, um, which I know, Mike, you're a, you're a big fan of. But I, I just love that line, Jesus's marriage to Deborah, a maiden of Jerusalem and of common birth. <laughs> that was, that's the thing that really, that really gets the church's goat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's an interesting thread with religion through this whole piece. And thinking about or through the whole um, collection, and I'm reading the last line from the Panopolek story where it says, uh, a homeless moon was loitering about the town and I strolled together with it, keeping warm within me, unfulfillable dreams and out of tune songs. And I think something about like, and kind of what, what David was getting at too, what's weird about this is it's not just like, look at all the horrible things that happen at war. Look at all these horrible people there's this narrator who wants to be part of this who can't there's something in him that can't be like everyone else that can't enter fully into it that's kind of the running like tension in it uh and it's not like i think a normal war story and i know in the american tradition it's like uh hemingway and crane it's like are you brave enough or can you withstand fire this he's like it doesn't even mention that like of course he's he, he can get shot at who cares Dying is easy. It comes up again and again. He's too scared to kill. Like he cannot become a killer. Uh, and he prays at one point to God for the strength to kill another man, which I just blows my mind that moment. It's probably my favorite moment in all literature. Uh, and it is like this kind of anti-narrative from everything we understand. It's someone who's trying to enter into this natural Cossack idealized horror, like nature, right? 
And he's like that line there I quoted just because, again, unfulfillable dreams and attitude songs. He's out of sync. He's like awkwardly placed. Uh, and, and to our conversation last week, David, when we talked about Cutsy, like this in disgrace, you have to give up everything. He, I feel that's like the tension in this book. He, he's still holding on to his self, like his formal kind of who he is. That is his weakness. And he can't give up everything. And, and it's not political in the sense of like the, the Bolsheviks and the revolution, but it is definitely revolutionary. And it's part of this kind of Russian literature at the time who's experimenting with the very boundaries of what literature is. Uh, and, um, and that to me is why it definitely appeals as a war story again and again. It's him coming up to the Cossacks, not having the courage to kill in some ways. Uh, to, there's that one story where the one Cossack is injured and his, his uh, entrails are hanging out. And he says, kill me before the, the Poles get here because they're going to play their dirty tricks on me. And the narrator's like, no, I'm not doing that. And he's like, hey, he's dying. Go shoot him, other Cossack. And then afterwards, that, that it's a really kind of funny moment in some ways. The Cossack goes and shoots his friend. And this is now going to kill you, Four Eyes, because you're worse than the Poles. Uh, and it's true in a way. I mean, he's let, he, he, doesn't, he can't um, make that leap. Uh, and it's like this moral weakness in him. And as a reader, I'm a fan of morality. I'm like, hold on to it, hold on to it. Uh, but at the same time, in that world that he is in, it's keeping him from uh, not just being a good soldier, it's, it's from like truth. It's like, it, and that's kind of the, the horrible fascination of, of these stories. And if you look at Babel's life too, I mean, he never left it. He was always putting himself in these situations over and over again, and it caught up with him eventually. Uh, but that's what he wanted. Uh, and it, it, yeah, it, it's definitely strange. There's moments with that, and that is definitely tied to religion to get back to your point, Adrian, because it, he does have this religious side and fascination. Like he, again and again, he records when the church windows are broken. Like that, the fact that he records that offends him. The Cossacks don't care. Uh, and he's seeing it, right? And he's like trying not to see it. He's like, why is this bothering me? Uh, and he wants to somehow kill it off. Um, and one last point. I think that to me, if there is like a nobility that isn't pure nihilism, like you're saying earlier, David, like it, it's the relationship to animals and horses. <laughs> I feel that we should maybe talk about that. I think there's a thread there as well. Um, what he wants to achieve, uh, what the Cossacks have, is not just this murderous capacity, this barbaric attitude towards the world, um, but they're also curiously, uh, in tune with their animals, with their horses. Uh, and to me, the most affecting moments in, this, in the collection are when there's a one moment where the Cossack loses his horse, it gets shot in, in battle. And, and seeing how the Cossacks, they break down and have like post-traumatic stress because their horses get killed. Uh, that's what kind of throws them off. And it's, in, it's a weird little uh, angle that uh, Babel seems fascinated by as well. Um, but, yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks, Mike. That's that's an interesting point with the animals, and it's something I think we've seen a lot of other war writing where maybe um, humans' relationship to other humans and acts of brutality and inhumanity in general, um, you know, kind of it bogs us down and it starts to we don't even get as affected by it anymore. But something that seems to cut through it is when this brutality is then done to animals. You know, when you shoot the horses or the dogs 
or you know when you see some suffering of the animal in this context where you've you've just seen it done to humans but you're juxtaposing the same thing but it, it's like tuning into a different wavelength and suddenly it hits you, you say wow you know we're uh, we're doing this to each other but also to every other animal and it kind of helps you focus the inhumanity of it it's in uh, it's something humans are doing not just to each other but to, uh, to animals as well and i think we talked about that as well last week with Cutsy, and uh, he brings up animals a lot you know there's dogs and other things where you know it kind of helps you sympathize with the character more to feel the suffering when it's also done to an animal for no reason. Yeah, when it's done to a person for no reason, you find meanings or maybe it means nothing, but for an animal who can't speak and has no other rights anyway, it just makes it even that much more pathetic. It's like, you know, just emphasizing, if that makes sense. Yeah, Definitely. you know, the, the so, and that, that brings up two thoughts. Uh, the first of which being, I think the first time he, if, if, if if memory serves, the first time he writes about being ingratiated into the company of Cossacks, or maybe one of the ingratiations, like a moment of where, where, where he has community with them, is in My First Goose, where there's, uh, where he's sort of uh, being told by a landlady or, or by uh, somebody at like one of the places that they're staying that there isn't food for him, and he just grabs one of her geese and kills it. And then says like, prepare this for me. And then the Cossacks that are already there are like, hey, come over here and have some of our food. They're like, he's, he's been initiated into violence, uh, into their world by doing basically what he wants for himself. Um, and he's not viewed as an outcast uh, in that particular moment. And then the other thing I was thinking about was uh, with your point earlier about horses, Mike, um, that interesting uh, story at the end, the name of which, um, eludes me is it um it's not a story the story of a horse um i am looking um it is argamac it's, it's actually the last story in in red cavalry where um he ends up with the with another cossack's horse and he just like it's a cossack's horse this is like far beyond his skill to ride and he can't ride it properly. He keeps injuring it by riding and there's no like amount of padding that he can put on the saddle to make him ride the horse without the horse like getting messed up. And the horse has been taken from a Cossack that's still alive, but is being punished. I don't remember why. Um, so the, the Cossack is riding with sort of the reserves and one learns like they're, they're attacked by the Poles and the Cossack who is riding with, you know, the, the supply train actually it manages to, to, um, to defeat the Poles by sort of like improvising a defense with the supply train. And then he's, but he's still on, he's on a carriage, you know, he's not with his horse. And then at the end, the Pole, uh, the, uh, the Cossack takes the horse back and, and he, and Babel wants to make it up because the whole time he's arguing with uh, like his squadron commander, he's like, Hey, don't want this horse. Like, you're, this guy's really angry at me. Um, can you please like take, you know, give it back to him or something like, I don't want the horse. You're making an enemy for me. And uh, the squadron commander doesn't care. He's like, that's your problem. That's not my problem. That's a, that's a you problem. That's not a me problem. And so finally he's able to give, because the, I think because the Cossack does this heroic thing, like he's earned his horse back. So Babel's like, yeah, please take it. I never learned how to ride it. Like this was never my horse. It's your horse. 
Like, I just want to put this whole thing behind me and forget about it. And I, I don't remember what the quote was exactly, but the Cossack is like, no, like this isn't water under the bridge. Like this is still a problem. And he just takes the horse and leave, leaves. But that's like, that's, that is the irresolvable problem. It's not like the murders. It's not, it's, it's not a whole host of other things that it could be. It's not, it, it's, it's that his having ridden this horse um, was tied into the Cossack's dishonor and that's some, or, or humiliation, and that's something that will never change. That's something that is beyond Babel's capacity to change. Like, it would have been better, probably on a certain level, if he'd actually just shot the Cossack. Like, that would have resolved the problem. Um, but, and then it isn't resolved, the story, like, like so many of these, these stories, the story ends. That's the end of Red Cavalry, is that there's this grudge that this Cossack bears against Isaac Babel, and that's never going to change. Yeah, and that's, the, that's really important. That's the very end. And it, just to quote a couple more from that last page there, and he's like, you've given me an enemy, I said to him, but how am I to blame? And it's hilarious in a way, like the, the commander, Balin, he's just like, I like, I don't care, like you said, like, he's like, you deal with it. Uh, and of course, they're messing with him too, because he is Jewish. And he's in some ways the opposite of what should be a Cossack who traditionally is always killing Jews. Uh, and you have um, him trying to fit in and they're messing with him. And one of the ways to fit in, of course, is to be able to be in command of your horse and like be at one with your horse. Um, but there's this beautiful moment right after that. He's going back to the commander. He's like, why'd you do that? Like, how am I to blame? And then um, the, the commander interrupts. I understand you. I understand you completely. Your aim is to live without making enemies. Everything you do is aimed that way. So you won't have any enemies. Uh, and that I think is crucial in terms of Abel's self-awareness of like what is wrong with him. And some like traditionally like, that's a good thing about <laughs> like, you should be like that. Uh, and they're saying, this is exactly what is wrong with you. And what's wrong with the world is that you're too much of in a way, a coward to make an enemy. Uh, and, uh, and then my favorite line in the book actually is like right after that. And then Balin is um, he's sitting there and it's really interesting. This commander, it's described earlier in this same story as like just 22 years old, but he's just kind of like blade. He has no, he has like a set path on life and he's already like a hardened killer and he's like the best commander they got. And he has like no uh, kind of empathy in the traditional sense. He's just does his job. Uh, and he's, he's talking to, to Babel here and he says, do you know what the end of this is? He said, unable to control his breathing properly because he's still hurt from the battle. The end of it is boredom. Go away to the ragged mother. Uh, I had to leave. I got to transfer to the sixth squadron. Things there were better. And then it says, he's like, and I did. My dream was fulfilled. I became, the, the Cossacks didn't look at me strange. I rode a horse well, but that's not in the plot, which is weird. He's just like, yeah, things got better later on. Um, he leaves it at that moment where uh, he's, you're scared to make enemies. But then immediately this commander who is pretty much a revolutionary character, like a hardened killer and will be his whole life, this new man. And he says, you know, at the end of this to, to Babel, it's boredom. Go away to your ragged mother. And like, so it's just this insane hopelessness in that statement, but he's also the hope of the revolution. Uh, and Babel wants to be him, which is fascinating. <laughs> um, yeah, that reminds me of, uh, there's a novel by Tolstoy called The Cossacks, which is all about this, uh, you know, these guys who just, they live off of blood feuds and, dueling and vendettas you know like it's an everything is an insult it's very virile honor culture and um you know that those were the cossacks and 
those are the same people basically uh, Babel was embedded with, I guess we could say. He, but Babel, you know, was an educated, sensitive, literary guy who is not part of, you know, like an ancient honor culture who just pulls out a pistol or a sword and kills at will for an insult. And yeah, it, it seems through the, the narrative here that he feels bad about not fitting in with these guys. And, you know, he's, he's covering almost as like journalism, what's going on, you know, we see the killings, the, you know, the progress of the war in some way. But, um, you know, he's, he's kind of like a journalist or a war correspondent here. But uh, he wants to be, I don't know, does he really want to be one of them? Or is he, you know, Mike, you mentioned how it's like he was out of sync the whole time and there was some kind of moral weakness here. But, you know, I think we could call it a moral strength. Yeah, he never fits in with these guys because they're brutal and psychopathic murderers. And, you know, they, they actually just love killing each other for the fun of it. Oh, and now that they get to kill Polish people, that, that's even better too, you know, kill other soldiers. As soon as that war's over, they'll start killing each other again. So, you know, Babel is a writer and he was a lawyer, journalist, and, you know, he never got on board with this, this type of lifestyle. And, you know, later we see what happened is the, the Soviet regime took hold even more. It became Stalinist regime uh, in the late 20s. And he was always a uh, persona non grata, you know, in, in the, the Soviet system, but he was well known, so he's somewhat protected for a while. But in the end, you know, he was, uh, he was brought in on trumped up charges and he was shot in the middle of the night in, uh, in a prison in Moscow because he was, uh, you know, he didn't praise the system enough. And he, it's just, um, you know, he's got a brutal ending uh, in a brutal story, in a part of history, any writer, any artist, or any sensitive person would not want to be there. But he was, he wrote about it. And um, I don't know, I just don't know what to make of it. You know, what would we do if we, you know, we're writers, we're thoughtful people, you know, in a way, you know, what would we do if we found ourselves in the midst of this type of war in a totalitarian regime much worse than anything we could imagine. You know, that's what Bobble found himself in. Well, yeah. Oh. And I, just really quickly, you know, to, um, I, I think what, 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 maybe what Mike was getting at, and Mike, I'll, I'll be interested to hear your, your thoughts on this as well, when he said moral weakness, um, it's, it's more that like, Babel goes to the place, He's with the red, uh, the red cavalry, which is actually this is one of the elite, viewed at the time as one of the elite units in, um, in the red army. And while they were doing well, they were doing very well. They were being written about in the papers. They were for their time, uh, during the, at least the the counterattack phase when the Soviet Union was pushing on Warsaw, considered probably analogous to. Uh, I don't know, the Rangers or something like this, an elite unit that was, was feared and positive things were thought about them. And so he's there and he's at the war. And I think you're right, David, that he is a journalist and a writer, but he also, he, he insists on being a journalist and a writer while he's there. He insists on, as you said earlier, Mike, noticing the, the shattered 
window glass and the, these things that the Cossacks are doing. And it feels, it does feel somewhat disingenuous to try to have it both ways, to say, I'm going to be here, but I truly am only going to be here as a witness. I am not getting my hands red with this blood. It's frustrating to see that. I can imagine how I would have felt if there had been such a person assigned to our unit when either time when we were in Afghanistan and went on all the patrols and got shot at and saw everything and kept coming back and talking shit about the soldiers, you know, and being like, you know, you could bear, you couldn't even hit the Taliban, like, or, Hey, you know, artillery, you, you kept hitting villages, you, the village uh, compounds. You weren't even hitting the right compound as villagers. Like they're going to be here, you know, with their goats and such uh, for compensation because we, we hurt them or we destroyed their property. Uh, that would be, you know, that you're, that's the person that a civilian wants to be at war. But when you're there as a soldier or an officer, you're sort of annoyed because you realize that at any moment, if you do something bad, accidentally or not, you're going to be held to account. And it takes a great leap of faith on the part of soldiers and officers to understand that you know, you're not going to be the soldier or officer that does something wrong, uh, that commits a war crime. And in a unit like the Cossacks, which again, is an elite unit, and, and, you know, for centuries, people knew what the Cossacks were and did. It wasn't like they were like, you know, they, they brought the Cossacks in and they were like, they'll probably be pretty well behaved on this campaign. <laughs> it's like, you know, they brought the Cossacks together and the Cossacks are like, all right, it's Cossack time. And they're like, yes, it's Cossack time. Go do Cossack stuff. Uh, and they did. So, but here's Babel still, he's this guy, you know, with, with, he's repeatedly referred to as four eyes and you already know, you know, and he's this, this Jewish intellectual and you know, you know, what, what kind of a guy he is. Um, and thank God, you know, he, he, he was there and he bore witness in the way he did. But at the same time, you can absolutely see why these people are frustrated with him. Yeah, no, I like how you said that in terms of, and how they would treat him in their understanding of him and knowing that he, and that's why first goose is always a great story because they, they essentially beat him up when he comes in and throw his stuff everywhere. And yet he has this like intense, I would say almost sexual attraction to like this, this, this kind of lifestyle. All these men sleep together. They hold each other. Um, he describes them as attractive as women with the way they're all strong and manly. Um, yeah, and then first goose, he ends up, uh, he, he gets, he kills the goose and he gets to sleep with them. And then he reads, he reads to them. And he, now he has his intellectuality as like something anyways. Um, and they, it's a weird moment there. Um, but I guess it, what I was thinking a lot, what's fascinating, and to get back to your point too, David, about moral strength, like, yes, it is, he has this moral strength. But what's interesting about Babel to him, it is a moral weakness <laughs> that he has this moral strength. I really think that it is. It's like frustrates him on a fundamental level uh, that he has this kind of moral strength. And he's not doing it, sometimes maybe it's a little bit disingenuous, but I do feel he, he has, he's pained by it. Uh, and I get, thinking about what you just said, Adrian, you all remember the story where there's the one Cossack who's just killing uh, Polish prisoners, who's going, like they have to, they all undressed, um, I guess after the, when the Poles give, surrender they take off all their clothing so you don't know who the officer is uh and then uh this frustrates the cossack so he starts just killing them and um and then babel is like whoa 
and you can tell this is headquarters babble. He's like, there are rules. Um, and that I would not want to be in that position, obviously. That would be a very awkward position to be like, you can't do this. Um, he's like, I have to report you for just killing this person. And then the Cossack kills another, after they find out the officer, he kills another one. Um, and obviously this Cossack is deranged. He's, he's got a head wound. He's like all over the place. Um, and so you have this kind of struggle in the traditional story. We'd be like, Babel's trying to do the right thing. Right. Um, and, and he does that because that's who he is. But yet at the same time, the second half of that story, the Americans show up. And I don't know if you all noticed the moment, um, with the, uh, they have the planes, right? They, they're supporting the, the Polak, the Polish with the, the whites, uh, and this, this battle against communism. And so you have the, the three planes so, show up and you, the, the, the Cossack that was killing the prisoners, he's, he's like, I have to do something. You have this weird moment and he gets the other Cossack that was also trying to resist the killing. He's like, you're coming with me, everyone else into the woods. And he charges, or essentially he, he tries to take on the three planes with the machine gun. Um, and it doesn't end well for him um, or the person that he brings with him. But, if you think about like Babel and his choices there, first half of that story about recording these war crimes, right? Uh, and the second half showing the same guy who was doing the war crimes, dying this insane death, right? But at the same time, it's a death that saved the rest of the Cossacks. Um, and then Babel wrestling with his own relationship to all this uh, and getting back to this idea, yeah, he has this traditional moral strength that's there and it's from beginning to the end, um, but he's really struggling with, is it a strength in this world, in this new world or in the old world or in any world? Um, and uh, it, it's very uncomfortable. I mean, I always come away thinking it is a strength. That's why I love it and why these are so powerful. Um, but we do see um, the, how it can be turned into a weakness uh, and yeah, and you just have those moments that are, are kind of that these, these brilliant endings. And one last point, the, his whole life, David, you mentioned that he was taken in um, and eventually shot, shot by uh, Stalin's secret police, but he spent the whole 30s hanging out and partying with Stalin's secret police. And everyone, all his writer friends are like, that's not smart, right? You're, you're going to, something's going to happen. Uh, and so he lived this, this life that this, he had this compulsion to push himself in those places. And I, some part of him wanted to be like in that club. He had to, he wanted to be in that secret police club where you could be friendly with someone and then murder them 10 seconds later and then be a friendly, normal person again. And if you look at some of his other stories, he has a fascination his whole life with Jewish gangsters who do the same thing with um, even when the revolution just starting, he, he just, he loves those stories where, the same person who's like your friend and talkative and a nice guy will do something incredibly violent and horrible and then go back to doing it again. Uh, and um, Babel, I, he's attracted to that. Uh, and uh, these stories kind of force us to look at our own attraction to that. Um, and, but you have something to say, Adrian. So just to, uh, as a quick aside, um, that story in, in which the POWs are being uh, killed is squadron commander Trunov, uh, T-R-U-N-O-V, Squadron Commander Trunov. And that story jumped out to me because the part with the American bombers and the sort of machine gun defense was like clearly echoed, uh, or, or I guess not echoed, but um, prefigured for whom the bell tolls with the little guerrilla band on top of the mountain shooting at the approaching fascist bombers. 
except the American bombers are in the place of uh, the Condor Legion in this particular case. That was interesting. Yeah, and it, it's a brilliant, it, that's funny. I never saw that Hemingway pulling that. And I wonder Hemingway reading these stories too in his own relationship to him. But that is, for some reason, incredibly powerful. Maybe as an American, like seeing that whole side of history, you know, it, being just a man on a horse in, in Ukraine or whatever and to see American planes, like what are they doing there? <laughs> like, uh, and so um, it, it's a whole aspect of history we forget about. And so I, that's another reason to check out this book if you haven't. Yeah, how many, how many Americans know that we even fought in Russia in 1920? You know, it's not something that, that's taught, you know, that we were involved in the Russian Civil War and we lost, actually. But uh, now, Adrian, I couldn't help go back to this Cossack issue once again, how they're the elite unit. Because, uh, you know, this quote by Borges, actually, it's pretty funny. And maybe we'll have to do a little bit of, uh, you know, research into the Cossacks here. But he, he says, those blustering and useless warriors, no one in the history of the universe has been defeated more often than the Cossacks. And, you know, what's he saying? It's a typical Borgesian line. It's just overly generalized and universal. But I mean, really, like the Cossacks weren't instrumental in Napoleon's flight from Moscow or, you know, any number of, you know, fights with uh, the Turks. And But yeah, it's kind of like, are they an elite unit or are they useless? And I think one thing we can't deny is, you know, they were an honor culture, very violent people. Um, they loved horses and Bobble was the complete opposite of all of that, you know, but like you said, in general, I mean, he wanted to kind of be a part of it. He wanted to kind of sympathize with these Odessa gangsters and, and another collection. And he wanted to be part of the in crowd with the Soviet secret police and functionaries, I suppose. How much of that was just political survival, you know, in a time when you could get shot for anything, but how much was it part of his personality and, you know, that we could see early on where he, you know, he wants to maybe not be who he is, but he wants to be one of those heroic people, you know, in quotes. But it's hard to tell, you know, we don't have any psychoanalysis of the guy, you know, we don't know what he was thinking about, but, um, you know, this book was very influential. I mean, I, I still stand by the idea that it's one of the first, maybe the first kind of modern war literature writing. I mean, Hemingway, you mentioned, I think it's almost certain that Hemingway read this, you know, he was, uh, he read Russian writers, he, he knew all about the war here. And, um, you know, it's, you know, the, the, you know, scene you mentioned, uh, you know, could clearly be taken from Red Cavalry. And, you know, a lot of other really well-known writers have, have highly praised Bobble and Red Cavalry specifically. I mean, he's, it's a, a person and a collection that writers in particular, you know, they see the merit in the, the prose, the way it's written, the way it's constructed is very well done. And it's, um, you know, I think it's beautifully written, even if it's also revolting for me on a moral level. And I still don't like that point of it. I mean, I, I appreciate it, but I just don't particularly like reading over and over again about all these things happening to innocent people and people killing each other. You know, I'm, I'm not going to change that, I think, but it has a huge place in, um, in the modern literary canon and especially war literature. 
for, you know, kind of not putting any spin on this. You know, it's not a glorified account of war. It's not covering up and making it romantic. Um, even when you mentioned uh, Beer's uh, occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge and some of those precursors, it's nowhere near at this level of brutality and also just the scale. And um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's still very, very important, I think, on that level. Definitely. The, um, thinking about like how you're describing him and his choices and as a work of art and how inspiring this work of art has become. Like I can think of, uh, if anyone's read uh, Jesus Son by Dennis Johnson, uh, Airships by Barry Hanna, like word for word are, are taken from this. Like they just reproduce it in different contexts, um, which is what writers do. It's perfectly fine, but there's something incredibly charged about the style and what Babel does as a writer irrespective of the topic. It's the, it, the way that he has these juxtapositions, uh, these violent movements between this lyricism, right? And this like extreme violence and coupling them. Uh, and which is interesting because whenever I think of it, I'm like, this is like such, it, it's revealing the horror of war in some ways. But it, and on another level, it, it's incredibly false and artful in, 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 a, in a good artist way. Like he's constructing it, like we said earlier. He's very careful about how he reproduces effects. Uh, and then, and thinking about Babel and looking at some of his diary entries and his obsessions and why he does this, it, he does have this kind of allegiance above all, not to the revolution, but to revolutionary sort of art. I'll come back to that idea. Uh, and he, and I think personally why he put himself in these situations, right? It's this loyalty to the idea of what art should be and what art is capable of doing. And I know for some things from his biography, he had his family already moved into, uh, I think they lived in Belgium or in, uh, in Brussels and in parts of France. He had many opportunities in the 20s and 30s to go live with them. He chose, he said again and again, I, to be a true writer, you need to live where you are from and to be able to reproduce that reality. Um, and I think, again, a, a choice that he makes his choice again and again, which are really bad choices from a moral perspective, from his artistic perspective, they, they seem to be um, driving him. Uh, and uh, it's weird to think about someone, and it is uncomfortable, David, you're right, like who puts his, his own life, right, and other people's life, um, it, he gives them up in the service of his art uh, in this extreme, uncomfortable way. And that's why I think it's fascinating that Borges picks him out like this. Uh, and another person who kind of conceived the world and reality through art. Uh, and, um, and that line at the end there that you read, David, about him, that everyone, was it, everyone has no salt in my heart? Like everyone's memorized this story. Um, yeah, many people know it by heart. Many, which is absolutely ridiculous in any kind of like yeah. literal sense. Um, we just said like no one even read Red Calvary remembers Saul. But I think in some more like fundamental, if, if Borges is saying like, know it by heart, like this is our heart. Like this is something about us that we know without even reading it. Like it is in us, whatever is like, terrifying about salt, about a relationship between the intellect and our bodies. Uh, I think Borges is in his very Borgesian way hitting at something profound uh, about how 
this is part of us. Uh, and we do have it memorized. We just haven't kind of um, realized that we know it so well, um, which is terrifying. If boys yeah, and, saying that. And also, it could be some sort of dark humor, but it could also be a statement like metaphor that he's writing about the horrors of war that, yes, many people know by heart from experience, from living it. Yeah, there's, there's something definitely deeper there to investigate. And um, as we're talking about Borges, you know, by chance here, I'm also reminded of his story, The Secret Miracle, which, um, you know, is, I think there's a connection here with Babel, you know, so if we go back once again to the execution of Isaac Babel, who I think it, it's made him into a quintessential literary martyr, you know, um, you know, the writer who was executed by a political regime and dictator for not, you know, sticking to the party line, whatever else it may be. He was, you know, anonymously or secretly shot in the head, and, you know, in the middle of the night. And nobody ever knew the story till the records were opened up decades later. But um, what we saw when the records were opened up are the last words of Bobble. And... Um, what he said was, I am innocent. I've never been a spy. I never allowed any action against the Soviet Union. I accused myself falsely. I was forced to make false accusations against myself and others. I am asking for only one thing. Let me finish my work. So, you know, that those were his last words, but he was never allowed to finish his work. He was never given his manuscripts um, over the months he was held in the secret prison. And um, the story by Borges, The Secret Miracle, we have uh, a writer who was taken by, uh, you know, in a war by political enemies. And he was put in front of the firing squad. And um, the night before, he prayed to God to let him finish his book. So the next morning, he's marched out in front of the firing squad and time stops. And the the writer who's about to be executed can continues to see everything happening, but um, everything else is frozen, like in a movie, you know, just nothing's moving, but he could think and he understood this was his miracle. He had, so in his head, he had one year to write and rewrite mentally his work until he finished it. And then he get, he was grateful and then time continued and the bullets rained down and killed him, but he was allowed to mentally finish his work. And um, I wonder if he was thinking about Bobble in this case, who we wouldn't have known that quote, but you know, the writer who's executed, he's not allowed to finish his work. And that's what happens in the story. That's what happened to Bobble and numerous other victims, of course, of this regime and other regimes as well, who execute intellectuals and writers and artists and many other people for no reason. But, um, you know, the work itself is not important to, to the political uh, powers that be. You know, they want that to be silenced. And yeah, in this way, Babel's story itself is, uh, you know, is universal. And uh, I think uh, will continue, people will remember for this situation. You know, Red Cavalry was written long before this and stands as his best work. But looking back from history, we see he was on this path already, you know, coming to, uh, to this end. It is worth pointing out um, or that, and this is something that we discussed before we started recording, that 
Babel was also, in addition to being a, an excellent um, writer, obviously on a craft level, he, part of his project on a personal level seems to have been the conflation of what is true and what is false, uh, which I think frustrated his, um, frustrated the ability of other people around him to tell the true story of what he was doing at any given moment. And also seems to have, um, I, I think in the introduction that's written to the, the collections that we, the collection that we wrote, uh, that we read, was uh, the, the one hypothesis was that this was an effective mechanism for kind of frustrating intelligence gathering about him. Yeah, it, I mean, he certainly came from a, a, a storytelling background um, and in talking about the, the things that he witnessed growing up, uh, it seems that when he was interrogated about the various stories that he told of his, his life growing up in Odessa and Nikolaev, the timelines don't quite add up. And then the characters that are in uh, the stories are um, like, I think uh, Galena uh, is one of the, the, the earlier stories. And Galena wasn't an older woman relative to him. She was actually a younger woman and his father doted on her or something like this. So, so jumbling up the, the, the facts of life with the, the underlying truth of a given moment is something that he seems to feel is permissible. On an, auto, on an autobiographical level with other people, and then also to a certain extent on, uh, on a fiction level. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that was very interesting as well, just the, the what, what is important to say, uh, what is important to communicate, and maybe ultimately for him living in uh, an increasingly totalitarian world, but then um, just as part of a revolution, writing something like Red Cavalry, bearing witness to it as a journalist where one can only imagine in 1920, 1921, all of the facts are not being communicated in The Red Trooper, the publication that he's, he's responsible for contributing to and editing. You know, one, one can easily imagine that there are facts that are being left out from this. So he understands what is being written as a certain type of project um, uh, in, in narrative making and history building. But then for his own short fiction too, what is, what is important might not be, um, you know, that there's a good person and a bad person, but the experience of a reader seeing how two people interact in a given situation and then coming to some type of emotional conclusion um, at the end of it, which is revolutionary itself. Yeah. I think the that revolutionary aspect is something we should like, circle back again and again to. It's just this in the 1920s, like this this moment for writers, not just the revolution that came, right? But in terms of experimenting with writing, and one one last point I kind of wanted to make about this, where the revolution is taking place, when he's writing about these Cossacks, writing about these men who are in some ways unwritable, right? Who have no access to these, the, the traditional literary imagination. Uh, and there's, there's several moments in here where he talks about souls, right? And about the souls of these men, these new kinds of soul and feeling out people's souls through violence. Uh, and this idea of, I guess this revolutionary 
person are this revolutionary possibility, are sort of art, a new man, a new creation. And so when he thinks about li the difference between lies and facts, um, I think they're all useful ways to kind of interrogate this kind of new revolutionary soul. Uh, and, and you can't just like say, here are the facts on the ground. Um, I don't think he does that in any way throughout the, the stories. And if it, did you all notice there's like a motif of um, the, the sun throughout the whole, like the, the, what the sun is doing and the moon is doing. It, it, it's like the pathetic fallacy times a million. Like the, the, the sun feels what the, the, what's going on on the ground. It's, it's, it's extreme how he's like abusing those like literary um, tools. Uh, but I feel he's moving back and forth because he's trying to explore territory that no one has truly explored before that might be impossible to explore. Uh, and when we use ideas like fact in fiction, it, it gets kind of muddled. I, I really think he's pushing into like, how do you get at the soul of a Cossack, someone who lives life like that? Uh, and he's trying to use different tools to get at it. Uh, and I, I think even now, uh, we're still very uncomfortable with with the different ways that writers and artists have to manipulate reality in order to get at like uh, something deeper than the real. Uh, and I, I personally, that's why I like Babel so much. I feel he does that. Uh, and uh, there's a certain courage in that, but like David was saying earlier, I think there's also a cost, right? In terms of the people he's hanging out with uh, and the life that he led and what ultimately um, happened to him uh, being uh, becoming a martyr for art in a way, but in a ridiculous kind of unnecessary fashion uh, in, in many respects. Uh, so right. it, it's tragic in that sense. Yeah, another one of the, the main themes here is anti-Semitism, I think, because, um, you know, Babel is writing about war, he's writing about human um, relations and also brutality with other humans, but um, a part we can't elide is uh, the, the role of anti-Semitism. So, you know, we we know that Babel was growing up in Odessa as a Jew in the old Russian empire and the entire area of central Europe, you know, was every, every few years, every decade, there was, there were pogroms where people were basically allowed or, you know, not stopped from rampaging through Jewish quarters and burning shops and killing people. And uh, this was something that happened for a really long time. And it's something Jews uh, grew to, to understand was part of their life, this violence against them, which they didn't, I mean, who knows why? <clears throat> it was, you know, the old arguments about killing of Jesus. And, you know, this was another tool used by authorities to, to keep people in check somehow. It's just generic violence against uh, a small group of people. And I think Babel knew this very well. You know, it's in some of his stories in Odessa Tales for sure. Uh, actually portraying the real pogroms of, of Odessa. But, um, you know, it's something we get throughout uh, Red Cavalry too. So even Borges mentioned here that the Cossacks, of course, were anti-Semitic. Like, obviously, why wouldn't they be? Everybody was. And so we have another side here that Babel is a Jewish writer, intellectual person, who's embedded with this group of very violent and also anti-Semitic people who just, they, they hate him by default because he's a Jew, but also the leaders of the revolution they're supposedly fighting for, 
often Jews. You know, Trotsky was the, the organizer of the Red Army. And um, it's an interesting point of view. It's something that just, it's never stops being disturbing in the history of Europe, the history of the world, and of the, both world wars. But I mean, it's also a comparison with other writers of the time, like we talked about Schweig and um, how his Jewish identity sort of led to his demise. And also writers like Joseph Roth, I think, from Austro-Hungarian Empire, but who grew up in modern day Poland in a Jewish settlement. And he also wrote about Jewish identity in the same area. And it's just something, I think it's really integral part of this collection. We, we can't, you know, not talk about it in some way. No, agreed. One fascinating point about that, I mean, I, there's a lot of stories in there that mention the, um, the Poles' treatment of the Jews, right? And then the Cossacks' equal treatment of the Jews uh, in this, this engagement, this back and forth. Um, and there's a couple brilliant moments where he confronts, I guess, it, essentially this would be like Eastern European Jews. Uh, and uh, he comes from the city. Babel, and what, which it, you do have this tension with his own heritage, and he has these conversations with essentially these kind of country um, Jewish people, uh, and they get in arguments about the nature of the revolution. Um, and to get back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, part of giving up his, his intellectual side and giving up his humanity is also he's rejecting his Jewishness in some ways, too. I feel there's this fight going on. There's this one when he's having a conversation with one of the rabbis and it, they get in an um, argument about the bloodshed of the revolution. And the rabbi says uh, there's got to be kind of um, an international bloodless revolution. And then you have Babel kind of playing the role of like the true blood, uh, a bloody revolutionary. And he's saying there has to be violence. Violence is the revolution. Uh, and we don't know if he really agrees or not, but you can see this debate going on in his head. Um, about his own past, his own kind of um, discomfort from being part of that past. Uh, and so I'm trying to think of a comparable writer, um, but I, I think not just the fact that he's trying to fit into this, but it's also his own discomfort with his Jewishness. It plays a role throughout the stories. Uh, and uh, it's interesting to track uh, as we move towards the very end there. Um, and that's my thoughts. Yeah, it's, I mean, like I mentioned, Joseph Roth, I think, is a very comparable writer okay. who talked about um, Jewish questions, the divide between, you know, the intellectual city people and also the traditional, you know, I think it was called the shtetl settlements of, you know, the Jewish pale. And he, he interrogates a lot of those same issues, I think, in a, a very interesting way. I was, I was going to say Philip Roth, too, right? The American. For some reason, I think, to me, I mean, I haven't read enough Joseph Roth to comment, but like, in terms of this same kind of American, like this idea of the stereotypical Jewishness versus like trying to project something or, or come to something else in your writing uh, and wrestling with that, I, I feel when I when I've read a Philip Roth, there's something similar going on, uh, and um, so I assume he probably read his Babel growing up too. So, I guess. Yeah. The um... 
I guess a couple of thoughts. The first one is it, you know, and it's it's very difficult to one one wants to be very careful about describing the or ascribing causality to things in this space because we're when one ascribes causality to a thing like, for example, Cossack anti-Semitism, one is then treading on essentially a massive cemetery, which is the settlement of the pale. The, the, the area that comprises Poland, Belarus, um, the Baltic states, Ukraine, and um, which were the only places, I think, between the 18th century and the 20th century where Jewish people could legally inhabit um, permanently. So there were temporary residence permits uh, in St. Petersburg and Moscow that varied depending on the year and then the way that people would be, Jewish people would be controlled in those areas as you would, as David said, there would be a pogrom initiated and then people would be exiled from the city and they wouldn't be able to bring anything with them. So if, if the Jewish uh, community of Moscow or St. Petersburg was getting too wealthy, the czar would say, okay, you know, it, there are 8,000 of you maximum, 7,000 of you need to leave. And it would always end up being the 7,000 wealthiest and the czar would just sort of, uh, you know, take uh, the, the property of the people who had to leave and they were exiled somewhere. But so the reason that, um, you know, Jewish, permanent Jewish communities were to be found um, almost exclusively in the Russian Empire within modern day Poland, modern day Ukraine, modern day Belarus, and the modern Baltic states was because these were the, these, it was, it was by design. Um, and these were all of the places later that were sub subjected to the Holocaust. Um, so this is, you know, I don't want to, I think it's, it's easy to say um, that the combined variables of industrialization and um, state sanctioned violence, periodic state sanctioned violence um, within Ukraine, within essentially Imperial Russia in certain places um, is and and then of course the 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 specific German relationship with with uh, and then the Nazis relationship with with Judaism um, led to the conditions of the Holocaust. But we have here this this moment where it's it's one of the last moments, maybe the last moment that you get to see. I think anything approaching caveat given Babel's you know, sort of loose approach to history um, uh, a. a, a a, a sincere representation of a culture that's about to get sort of snuffed out from earth permanently, um, a unique culture. And it's, it's special for a lot of reasons, but most of all, because again, it was snuffed out beginning in 1941 with, um, with Baba Yar and, um, or, or probably even before then in 1939 in Poland, I really don't know the history of the, uh, but yeah, the, 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 the Warsaw ghetto and, and all of those places. Um, so I, it's, I, I'm sorry, this is a little bit of a digression, but I, I guess what I'm getting at is that Babel is, Babel's relationship to violence and Babel's desire, because I don't, it, it's, it's it, the, 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 the Jewish community is, um, is, is everywhere, both in Red Cavalry and in these other pieces, uh, these other pieces that he's written, and it's obviously incredibly important, it's central to Babel's own experience of the war and of life. At the same time, he has done 
a magnificent job of making it not about that. It is the, the, the Jewish experience of, of, of life in Imperial R Russia, in, in the settlement of the Pale, ends up being our own experience of life everywhere in the modern world, which is sort of subjected to these people who have control over violence that more or less arbitrarily gets assigned toward us when it is convenient for authorities to do so. And I think that's what gives the, the collection part of its power is that he's writing from a position both of remove and distance and, um, and privilege, and at the same time, uh, great uh, sort of pathologically um, and, and pathetic vulnerability. Agreed. Yeah, that's well said. Just a, a final quote from the end here uh, to close us off. And to think about Babel himself, um, where he located himself in terms of, do we think this is a lament for what has passed? Or is uh, this a celebration? Uh, he says, I had to leave. I got a transfer to the sixth squadron. There things went better. Somehow or the other, Argmach had taught me how to sit in the saddle the Cossack way. My dream was fulfilled. The Cossacks stopped following me, following me and my horse with their eyes. And he's part of this new world. He has his dream fulfilled. There's that central ambiguity there though. I mean, is, is he being serious there? Is he earnest? Is, he, is it a celebration um, or is it a lament for what has passed? Uh, and that's kind of the, the struggle at the heart of these stories for me. Well, I suppose that's a, a great place, the perfect place to end it. Uh, we could read out quotes that we'd written down from these stories uh, probably for another hour and talk for another three hours easily. Such a terrific collection. I, I recommend it to any um, practitioner of the craft. Um, I, I also, you know, definitely think it, it should come with a trigger warning in the sense that it's, it's a tough read. It's really hard. It is both fun and funny and challenging and engaging and horrifying, truly horrifying. Thank you.